Horse of a Different Color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968. Uh, we're on Chapter 9, Mustang Auction. Father, as the uh, hurricane comes inbound from Florida and the rain's falling, thank you for a roof over the head, for a house that's comfortable. Thank you, Lord, that you're watching over uh, each of your sheep. There's not a single part of your flock that you don't care for, know, nourish, lead, direct, discipline, comfort. Lord, you are the God who is always good, always right, and always just. So we worship you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sunday morning, I was up long before daylight, had my feeding done an hour after sunrise, and by 7 o'clock, Kitten and I were climbing the divide. The rain of the previous week had left the soil in, uh, in our south field as mellow as meal, and as my grandfather used to say, a hankering for the plow. It was time for corn planting, but I couldn't use Bob's two-ton team for both feeding and plowing, so I had decided to bring down four of my heaviest Mustangs for the planting job. I can't remember many days that I've had more fun than on that Sunday. My Mustangs had come through the winter in fine condition were as round and sleek as otters and wilder than falcons. No matter how carefully a Mustang is broken or how tractable he may be during the working season, his instinct is to fight restraint after a winter's freedom. All forenoon, I worked with the four rod used for corn planting, harnessing them to a wagon load of dirt, then letting them fight it till they'd blown off their excess steam and would answer the rains willingly. I spent the whole afternoon playing, roping other broncs, saddling them, and riding them in a pole corral. Everyone bucked furiously, but they showed no viciousness, and though I was tossed several times, I was unhurt, except for a few bruises and having the wind knocked out of me two or three times. I would have liked to have stayed and played with the horses till dark, but I knew Bob would find some excuse for not feeding the stock. With the sun still two hours above the horizon, I gave each Mustang, what, uh, I gave each Mustang that I wasn't going to use for plowing a slap on the rump, dodged its flying heels, and watched it race away to the pasture and a few more weeks of freedom. In western Kansas, the topsoil is deep, and because of the scant rainfall, the planting season, the plant-feeding chemicals haven't been leached out of it. So few farmers dress their land. But I learned farming from my New England father, and couldn't bear to plant corn on undressed land when there was a foot-thick blanket of manure in the feedlot. Bob and most of the neighbors told me I was wasting my time when I started hauling manure. But George nodded his head and said, If I was in your boots, I wouldn't pay him no mind. Sure, a calf will live and grow on skim milk, but he'll grow a slight faster if he gets the cream. <clears throat> I spent the whole first week of May hauling manure and spreading it over the 40-acre south field, then another two weeks plowing and planting, often with Betty May riding on my knee. The corn planting kept me too busy to work my territory, but there was always a trading session on Saturdays, and the six carloads of surplus steers we shipped made a profit of $300. That spring of 1920 was glorious for me, and Sundays were the best days of all, for I spent them at my place on the divide, getting ready for the wheat hauling season that would begin in late July. To have the whole day free, I arranged to mail my specimens to Dr. DeMay and told Bob I wouldn't be home to do the Sunday evening feeding. I spent the forenoons reassembling my wagons, resetting the tires, making repairs, touching up the paint, and putting harness into first-class condition. Then I devoted the afternoons to rounding the horses into shape, 
trimming their hooves, hitching each pair to a heavily loaded wagon, driving them enough to sweat off their winter softness, breaking down the resentment of control by firm but gentle handling, and finally retraining each four-horse team until it responded as a unit to every command or touch of the reins. I'd finished the corn planting and been working my trading territory a week or two when a lightweight truck passed me on the road. It was the tr first truck I'd ever seen on a country road, but five more passed me by the end of the week, all driven at breakneck speed by young fellows I'd never seen before. I should have had sense enough to know why they were there, but it never occurred to me until a farmer told me they were contracting to haul wheat a little more than at a little more than half the price per mile I'd charged the previous summer. Even though I owned my horses and wagons clear of debt, I couldn't afford to meet any such rate. The coming Sunday would be 4th of July, and harvest would start that week. At an auction just before harvest, horses and wagons would bring more than at any other time. And although I'd never owned anything I hated so badly to part with, common sense demanded that I sell quickly. The bigger the auction crowd, the higher the bidding, so I headed straight for the telephone office. I told Effie my reason for having an auction, and it would be held at my place on 4th of July afternoon, with the biggest barbecue ever seen in Beaver Township and $50 worth of fireworks in the evening. Then I asked if she'd put out the line calls and have the operators in all the nearby towns do the same. Next, I went to see Bones, told him what I was going to do, and asked if he'd get as many bankers as he could to come. Bankers were nearly as important to me as bidders, because I intended to sell, I intended trying to sell my rigs as units. The four Mustangs that had been trained as a team, their harness, and a pair of tandem wagons. Few farmers, especially just before harvest, could write a check for as much as I hoped one of these rigs, one of those rigs would bring unless his banker was on hand to approve a mortgage loan. From the bank, I went to Oberlin, hunted up the best auctioneer in the county, arranged for him to handle my sale, and told him I'd pay an extra 1% commission on rigs sold as a complete unit. At the Oberlin cash store, I had an order sent off for the four skyrockets, Roman candles, and other fireworks. That evening, I told Bob about the auction and that he'd have to do the evening feeding for the rest of the week, but that I'd load the hay rack and corn wagon for him each morning. I spent most of Tuesday and Wednesday collecting the hogs I'd bought during the past weeks. It not only gave me a chance to drive my teams, let the farmers in four townships see how sleek and well-trained they were. All four Mustangs and the team I'd driven myself during the 1919 hauling season were, on, were old kittens offspring, the smallest, toughest, wildest, and most unmanageable of all my horses. The former owner had nearly ruined them with cruelty, but they were highly intelligent and had become tractable under careful handling. By the end of the season, they'd obey the reins with such machine-like precision that, in showing them off to Effie, I'd put them through a figure eight in front of the telephone office while hauling 120 bushels of wheat on a pair of wagons hitched in tandem. I decided to train them in the stunt at a run, not only as entertainment for the auction crowd, but to show, how to show prospective buyers how strong, dependable, and controllable my little Mustangs were. Although with collecting hogs and hauling supplies for the barbecue, I schooled the team morning, noon, and evening all week. By Friday, they'd pull a pair of loaded wagons at a full gallop along the level quarter-mile stretch of road leading to the buildings at my place, swing through a figure eight in the dooryard without slacking speed, and slide to a stop exactly in front of the corral gate. A steady rain set in before daylight on Saturday and lasted most of the day. It made schooling the horses impossible, but was so valuable to our corn crop that I was glad to have it. 
I spent all day and late into the evening getting ready for the auction, then stayed at the place all night. An hour before dawn on 4th of July, I drove down to the Wilson place to feed the stock and took my furniture along. It was all secondhand and nothing fancy, but I'd become sort of attached to it and didn't want it auctioned off, so stored it in Bob's empty bunkhouse. Bob and Marguerite went back with me as soon as I'd done the feeding, and we took along a man from Cedar Bluffs to do the barbecuing. While they started getting the food ready, I hitched up all seven rigs, put the teams through a final workout, then lined them up for display in the big corral. By noon, there were jalopies of every kind in description. Some fine automobiles, buggies, buckboards, carriages, and wagons lined up on both sides of the driveway and a quarter mile down the county road. The dooryard was swarming with people, and Bob was acting as traffic cop to keep it free of vehicles. It was customary not to serve the free lunch until after the auctioning. But it seemed to me that men with full bellies would bid more freely. When everyone had eaten and drunk all he could hold, the auctioneer climbed up on the corral gate and made a flowery speech about my four-horse tandem wagon rigs being famous throughout Decatur County and the whole region roundabout. After orating for more than 10 minutes about my Mustangs being the best trained, fastest, toughest, and strongest horses pound for pound in the world, he shouted it would be a downright crime to break up any one of the teams, so he was going to auction each complete rig as a single unit. I'm not asking you to take my word about these little horses, he bellowed. Before they're put up for sale, we'll give you a fantastic demonstration of their strength, speed, sure-footedness, and ease of handling. As Bob and the auctioneer harangued the crowd, clearing the driveway and dooryard, I climbed to the high wagon seat behind my figure eight team and gathered the reins in my hand. When the gate swung open, I drove out into the empty yard, then stopped the team and called out, I need a four-ton load here. How about 50 of you heaviest men and boys coming along for a ride? Four tons was far more than I wanted, but I was sure the boys would outrun the heavier men, and they did. Within 10 seconds, both wagons were packed tight, but the whole load weighed less than three tons. The driveway was straight and flat, hard packed from the recent rain and heavy traffic of the forenoon. I let the team pick up a brisk trot as we neared the county road, swung in them in a wide turn, still at a trot, and cautioned my riders to hold tight. As I'd done in practice, I snugged the reins the moment the leaders were facing toward the buildings, then sang out, Yeah! Ha ha ha! The four little Mustangs, no one of them weighing over 800 pounds, sprang into their collars as if each, as if each ha had been a whiplash. In a dozen strides, they picked their speed up to a full gallop, and by the time we reached the dooryard, they were fairly flying. With the crowd yelling insanely, we swung so close to the crowd that the skidding rear wheels of the trailer wagon missed the fence no more than an inch or two. By that time, the leaders were halfway across the yard, streaking toward the house, then swinging back toward the barn to complete the bottom circle of the eight, across the yard again, and into the reverse circle at the top of the figure. As we'd always done in practice, I hit the brakes hard at the top of the circle, and the rig slid to a stop squarely in front of the crowd gate. Almost instantly, there was a man at each bridle, and the crowd gathered tightly around us, wild with excitement. The auctioneer was too smart to let the opportunity slip away. He started the auctioning as soon as the crowd had quieted enough for the bids to be heard, and within three, three minutes had sold the rig for nearly $750. No other rig brought so much, but they all sold above $700. Even my six old tote horses brought $60 apiece. Spare harness and odds and ends sold for another couple of hundred, bringing the total for everything except kitten and my saddle to slightly more than $5,700. I wasn't at all displeased with the amount but far from happy otherwise. As men climbed to the high seats and drove my teams away, I felt almost guilty as if I'd sold my own brothers and sisters. 
After the auction, there was nothing I wanted less than a big celebration. So I asked Bob to host the rest of the affair, then saddled little kitten and rode away. It seemed unbelievable that only a year had passed since I'd come there, dead broke, and as part of a ragtag harvest crew. I'd planned to stay only to earn railroad fare to Denver, but the place had become my home, and I found myself riding away from it with an ache in my throat. For an hour or more, I let Kitten have her head as I thought back over the year and how good it had been to me. I'd made far more than I'd ever dreamed of making in a single year, and if the stock Bob and I had in the feedlot did as well as we expected, I'd make as much again before the summer was over. For the next month, I worked my territory every possible hour and shipped two carloads of stock a week. In early August, there was a cloudburst near McCook, and an inch of rain fell at Cedar Bluffs. It was fine for our corn, but I had to cultivate right away to keep the moisture from evaporating in the scorching heat. By the time I'd finished, there was no doubt that Bob and I would make a huge profit on the stock we were feeding, for the price of fat cattle had risen steadily since early June. Because we were nearly out of feed, I suggested shipping on August 14th. But Bob insisted that the steers needed another two weeks to reach prime, and George agreed with him. I had never seen George so optimistic about livestock prospects. Prime steers were bringing $17 a hundred, bacon hogs 16, and the corn had leveled off at $1.60. He had a theory that the whole market was in balance when hogs were 10 times the price of corn and prime steers a dollar higher. A man might as leave predict which way a flea will jump as to forecast the livestock market, he told us. But I'll say this, the way the price... The way the price of corn to hogs and prime steers have pulled into line is the healthiest sign I've seen since the war. Bob cut in to predict that prime steers would be bringing $25 a hundred before Christmas, but George told him, I'd stake anything I own that you'll see another war before you see fat cattle as high as $20, leave alone 25 But I'll look for him to stay right around 17 or 18 while corn brings $1.60. With George confident that the market was in a healthy condition, Bob and I wanted to put another bunch of stock on feed as soon as possible after shipping. Next morning, we went to see Bones about the financing and found him not only willing, but eager. He urged that we put in double our present amount of stock, enough high-quality feed to fatten it, and do all our buying immediately to avoid higher prices. When I pointed out that it would require an $80,000 investment, that's huge, you guys. That's just amazing. He said he knew it and had ample funds to provide the financing. Bob would have jumped right in, but I could see no reason for paying interest until we actually needed the money. And since George felt as he did about the market, I doubted that prices would rise to any great extent. So I told Bones, I'd like to put in another batch after we've sold this one, but I think 500 steers and half as many pigs should be the limit, and I don't want to buy feed more than a month before it's needed. I didn't work my territory during the last two weeks of August, but spent all my spare time grinding feed to put our steers in top-notch condition. When we loaded them onto the cars, they were as near perfect as any feedlot cattle I'd seen, and our hogs were equally good. Unfortunately, the last weekend of August was the hottest of the summer, so our shipping shrinkage was almost twice as high as on our first shipment, but we still came out wonderfully well. Three car loads of our steers and two cars of our hogs topped the market, and with the others close behind. Bob stood proudly beside the auctioneer as owner of the steers, and I stood as owner of the hogs. But the net receipts, of course, had to be paid directly to the bank at Cedar Bluffs. The day we got home and settled with Bones was one of the proudest of my life. After paying every dime I owed, I sent my mother a check that left my bank balance and even $19,500. But Bob's share, no, not but, 
since Bob's share brought his debt down to barely more than 8000 8, and there seemed little doubt that he could pay it off by the end of the year. By the following Friday evening, we'd bought our full quota of steers and pigs for our next operation and feed enough to last us a month. The stock was delivered on the 4th of September, and that afternoon, Bob and I signed notes for our new loans. Bob insisted that he have a mortgage on all our stock in the feed we'd bought, but didn't ask either of us for a mortgage on our corn crop. No, Bones insisted that we have a mortgage. With 750 head of stock in the feedlot and my trading business to take care of, I was busy from dawn till dark and had no reason to go to Cedar Bluffs in more than two weeks. Then, on the 21st of September, Bones phoned and told Marguerite that he'd like to see me at the bank right away. When I went in, he asked me to come back to his desk, looked around as if to make sure that Dave Sawyer, the cashier, wasn't listening, and said in a low whisper, you'll have to keep this strictly to yourself, but I've got to... Then he seemed to catch himself and change his mind. He cleared his throat and started all over again. No, son, I can't tell you what I was about to, but I'll say this much. It would be best for you and Bob to take out loans enough now to cover whatever fee you'll need till the end of the year. I'll make the due date January 4th, like your other notes, so you'll be in a good, safe position if anything should happen. I signed a note bringing my loan up to $20,000 and said I'd have Bob drop in to sign his but I did it only because there was something about Bones' behavior that left me no doubt of his absolute sincerity. He walked to the door when I went, laid a hand on my shoulder and told me, son, it's been good to do. Then he turned and without another word, walked slowly back to his desk. I left the bank as puzzled as ever in my life, but I never told anyone what Bones had said to me, though I had Bob go in and sign a new note. On the last Monday in September, the whole township was abuzz. There was a terse, announcement in the McCook Gazette. Henry S. Kennedy of Cedar Bluffs reports that he has sold 90 shares of stock of the First State Bank of Cedar Bluffs at $400 per share. Atwood Min to take over the bank. The next morning, Bones phoned for Bob and me to come up and meet the new bankers. When he introduced me, he said some nice things about my having arrived there as a harvest hand and become one of the most successful livestock traders and feeders in western Kansas. The new men seemed friendly enough, but I couldn't help the feeling that they were looking me over in the same way Bob and I looked over a steer when considering whether or not to accept him. When we left, one of them walked to the door with us and said pompously, Bank examiners are due here in a few days, and like as not, there'll be some scuttlebutt whispered about, but don't pay it any mind. We're putting in enough new capital to make this little bank as strong as the Bank of England. The rise in feed and livestock prices that Bones had predicted was short-lived, and followed by a sharp decline. By the end of October, corn had dropped below a dollar a bushel, prime steers were down two dollars a hundred, and bacon hogs more than three. But I could see nothing for Bob and me to worry about. There was plenty of time for livestock prices to recover before our stock would be ready to ship at the end of December, and the lower corn went, the less feed, the less our feed would cost. Hmm. Well, that is sad that Ralph had to sell all his horses and rigs and all, but it seems like it was a smart decision. Adapting to the automobile and the truck coming along. Technology really does change things, and it uh, seems like he was aware of that. Uh, I love you guys. Have a great night.